My guest today is Michael Werner. Michael Werner is a senior research scientist at the NASA JPL and has been a lead scientist for the Spitzer Space Telescope since 1984. Michael Werner is also one of the authors of a recent, very insightful book that describes fascinating discoveries made by the Spitzer Space Telescope. The title of the book is more things in the heavens how infrared astronomy is expanding our view of the universe michael werner is with me on the phone line uh, michael thank you very much for taking my call and a very warm welcome to bridging the gaps thank you very much i'm glad to be here uh, Michael, uh, before we discuss uh, the research uh, that you present in your book, More Things in the Heavens, uh, please uh, tell us about yourself. Uh, tell us about your education and about your research. Uh, how did you get here where you are now? Okay, well, let's see, it goes back a ways. But uh, when I, I grew up in Chicago, Illinois, in the U.S., I went to college at Haverford College, which is a small liberal arts college of which there are quite a few in the United States, perhaps not so many in Ireland. And there I got interested in astronomy and went on to, I took a year off to work uh, in astronomy at a government laboratory. And then I started graduate school at Cornell University in Ithaca, New York, which at the time was one of the, uh, institutions where infrared astronomy was just getting started. I got my PhD there in 1968 and um, had a series of appointments, postdoctoral positions at Cambridge and University of California in Berkeley. And I joined the faculty at Caltech, the California Institute of Technology, in uh, 1972, still a long time ago. Uh, it was there that I got started working on what is now called the Spitzer Space Telescope. At the time, it was called CERTIF for Shuttle Infrared Telescope Facility because it was envisioned initially that it would fly on the space shuttle, which fortunately never happened. And one thing led to another, and I ended up as what's now called a project scientist for the Spitzer Space Telescope, which has been uh, managed and uh, operated by NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory since um, 1990 is when uh, the work on CERTIF began at the JPL. And we launched CERTIF in 2003. And after the successful on-orbit operations were demonstrated, the name was changed to Spitzer, named after a U.S. Uh, astrophysicist named Lyman Spitzer, one of the pioneers of the idea of telescopes in space. Along the way, I've done quite a bit of research on a variety of problems, most notably the infrared radiation from the center of our galaxy and infrared radiation from regions where stars are forming. These are still pillars of the work that we've been doing with uh, the Spitzer Space Telescope. Uh, Michael, uh, before we discuss 
the Spitzer Space Telescope. Let us discuss briefly what is infrared astronomy. Talk to us about the significance of the development of infrared astronomy. Well, there are two, there are two aspects to that question, at least. One is a technological aspect. Um, infrared detection, well, infrared radiation is longer in wavelength than visible light. If it's often thought about as heat radiation. Uh, your listeners may be familiar with the idea of a heat lamp, uh, an infrared lamp of some kind. And the technology to detect infrared radiation is rather different from and more complicated than uh, the similar detection of optical radiation, partly because it requires that things be cooled or cold below, well below room temperature in order that their own infrared radiation doesn't swap the signal from the celestial targets. For that reason, technological reason, the development of infrared astronomy lagged behind the development of optical astronomy, and infrared astronomy really started to come into its own only in the uh, uh, mid-1960s, I would say. Now, because of uh, the properties of the universe and of matter in space and of basic physics, there are some unique things that we do in the infrared, they can be summarized for the most part as the old, the cold, and the dirty, which is a kind of a slogan. Old referring to the fact that uh, the distant universe is well studied in the infrared because of the fact that the universe is expanding, and as it expands, optical and ultraviolet light from distant objects is redshifted into the infrared part of the spectrum. This is the so-called cosmic redshift that, again, your listeners may have heard about. So that's the old. It's the old radiation from distant objects that we look at in the infrared. The cold refers to the fact that <clears throat> all objects, regardless of their temperature, produce um, electromagnetic radiation according to the laws of radiation. And objects which are cold um, Cold, colder than about uh, a third the temperature of the sun, colder than about uh, a few thousand degrees, most of their light comes to us in the infrared. And so we're able to see things which are too cold to be readily seen in the optical. This means uh, very old stars. It means matter in space uh, far from any particular star, but uh, still heated in some way to radiate the infrared or um, circum, you know, the, the outer regions of planetary systems and so forth. These colder regions can be studied uniquely in the infrared. And finally, the dirty refers to the fact that uh, cosmic dust, what we call interstellar dust, is a ubiquitous constituent of astrophysical systems. And the dust helps us in the infrared in two ways. One is that a cloud of dust, which absorbs a lot of optical and ultraviolet light because of the properties of the particles, will be transparent in the infrared. So we can see in the infrared into regions which are obscured or hidden by uh, cosmic dust along the line of sight.
perhaps the best example of this is what's called the, the, the center, the innermost part of our own galaxy, which is hidden from view in optical and ultraviolet light by all the dust clouds in the plane of the galaxy, but which we now know largely from infrared work to be the um, site or home to uh, the nearest uh, massive black hole weighing over a, ten, over a million solar masses. At the same time, uh, in other scenarios, infrared radiation is emitted by dust, which might be heated by absorbing optical and ultraviolet radiation. This conversion of energy into infrared can be very efficient, and we know of galaxies which are quite dusty and which radiate the bulk of their uh, luminosity may be as much as 90% or more in the infrared part of the spectrum because the dust absorbs optical and ultraviolet light. Finally, in addition to the old, the cold, and the dirty, the infrared is an important uh, probe of the composition of astrophysical systems. Again, your readers are, or listeners are probably familiar with the idea of a spectrum, uh, dividing light up into into smaller packets which contain spectral signatures or fingerprints characteristic of specific substances. And many interesting substances have these fingerprints in the infrared. So, for example, molecules of various kinds and solid materials in space or on the surface of planets or in the atmospheres of stars can be studied in the infrared to determine the composition and characteristics of the objects under study. So there, those are the four pillars, if you like, of infrared astronomy, the old, the cold, the dirty, and finally uh, studies of uh, uh, composition and materials. Thank you very much uh, for uh, this uh, thorough uh, description of uh, infrared astronomy. Uh, how and when did the idea of putting an infrared telescope in space uh, originate? Uh, when did we imagine a space infrared telescope? There are two advantages to us to go into space with an infrared telescope, which which have been apparent for a long time. First of all, if you get above the Earth's atmosphere, the Earth's atmosphere contains a lot of molecules, water namely, but others, which absorb infrared radiation. So if you get above that, at that rate, th those molecules, by being above the atmosphere, you can have a full view of the infrared spectrum without uh, the absorption by these molecular species. Of even greater importance is the fact that in space, you can imagine cooling the telescope to uh, to uh, eliminate its infrared radiation. And you're also above the atmosphere, so you don't have the infrared radiation from the atmosphere to contend with. So you're in, a, you're in an environment where the sky is very dark, if you like, and you can get a much clearer view of the heavens because there's no foreground infrared radiation from the telescope or the atmosphere to interfere with your observations. So those two um, considerations make it feel attractive to do infrared astronomy from space. 
the absence of the atmospheric absorption and the absence of emission, infrared emission from the atmosphere or a warm telescope. So the first attempts to exploit this, these advantages were done with rocket flights in the um, 60s and 70s, some of which were carried out by a man named Martin Harwitt, who was my thesis advisor at Cornell, not coincidentally. And the first real uh, major effort along these lines was a spacecraft called IRAS, the Infrared Astronomical Satellite, which was a joint project of the United States, the United Kingdom, and the Netherlands. IRAS flew in 1983. It really broke open the field of infrared astronomy because it surveyed the entire sky in the infrared. And it demonstrated the main technologies which we needed for CERNF, one of which is the use of liquid helium in space to cool things. Liquid helium is a kind of a squirrely substance. And the other is that uh, infrared detectors could work in the uh, ionizing radiation environment in space, the cosmic ray and particle environment. So it was in 1983, I would say, that the that the first big step along the path to Spitzer was taken. I believe uh, the funding for this project started in uh, 1980s and the telescope was launched in 2003. Uh, talk to us about the design of the Spitzer Space Telescope, uh, its lens, its sensors and uh, the science instruments that it carries. Okay, well actually the funding of the project started in 1971 when it was first proposed as a possible payload to fly on NASA's space shuttle. And we went through an awful lot of uh, twists and turns and political struggles and design studies and descopes and so forth to get to the system that we now have uh, operating in space. The, the main features of Spitzer as it now exists, or as it now uh, yeah, as, as it was realized, are the following. First of all, we're in orbit not around the sun, not around the Earth, as is, for example, the Hubble Space Telescope. So we're not orbiting the Earth. Instead, we're orbiting the sun. So we're in an orbit similar to the orbit of the Earth. We sort of follow the Earth around the sun, falling a little bit behind every year. This is called a heliocentric or solar orbit. And the advantages that it has are that um, it enables a, a novel approach to cooling, which I'll talk about in just a second. And also, because we're not constantly going around the Earth, we're not constantly going in and out of shadow. And, and uh, instead, we can have very clear viewing of large sections of the sky basically for days on end. So the so-called heliocentric orbit is a big part of our success. The second important part is that the, the way we achieve the cooling, which we need on Spitzer to reduce the infrared radiation from the telescope itself and also to uh, 
facilitate the performance of the detector arrays, which I'll get to in one sec, is novel compared to previous uh, approaches in that we don't rely entirely on, on taking the refrigerant up with us, but we use what's called radiative cooling in space where we radiate energy and heat into the coldness of space by a process called radiative cooling. And what that's allowed us to do is to continue to operate even after our stored cryogen was dissipated because of this radiative cooling, the system stayed cold enough that we could continue to use uh, much of its capability. And that's how the mission has lasted for, we're now in our 16th year by virtue of this uh, radiative cooling approach. The other key to Spitzer's success is the focal plane instruments. The telescope, which is only 85 centimeters in diameter, collects the light and brings it into a uh, instrument chamber where we had three instruments. And the key feature of these instruments is that they use what are called detector arrays, which are now very commonplace. Everybody with a cell phone has a array of detectors which produce uh, digital images. The ones we use in Spitzer are somewhat different, of course, because they work in the infrared. And they're small compared to, to what's available now, but very big compared to what had been used in the past. So just in summary, in Spitzer, we have arrays of detectors of uh, you know 60,000 pixels. And each one of these pixels, because it's on our cool telescope in space is a thousand times more sensitive than it would be on the telescope on the ground. And that combination of high sensitivity and large detector arrays is what's made Spitzer so powerful, both for imaging and for spectroscopy, both for taking pictures and for getting diagnostic spectra. Uh, Michael, uh, the expected lifetime and the duration of primary mission of Spitzer uh, was about uh, five years. However, it kept working and it kept making discoveries much longer than this expected lifetime. Talk to us about that. Well, um, when we when we launched Spitzer, we launched it with a supply of liquid helium, our main coolant, and we anticipated that that helium would last about five years. We weren't really quite sure if we could carry on after that, okay? So our expectation at launch was five years, but we knew that if things broke, went well, then um, we would be able to carry on because of the radiative cooling, which I described earlier. But that, that had never been really demonstrated or used extensively uh, the way we're using it. Once we got on orbit, even with the cryogen uh, that we were carrying, we could assess the performance of the cooling system, and it became clear that when we ran out of our hydrogen, our helium coolant, which cooled the telescope to a temperature of a few degrees above absolute zero, we would still warm up only to a few tens of degrees above absolute zero, plenty cold enough to implement, to permit really good infrared astronomy to be done. 
And so once we realized this and we knew that we had detectors that would be operable at that slightly higher temperature, we just basically applied for what we now call the warm emission, and that was extended about five times, adding another 10 years to the lifetime of the mission. So um, the possibility was latent from the first, and we realized soon after we got on orbit and analyzed the performance of the system that, in fact, we could go on without the, without the liquid helium and still have a very exciting mission scientifically. Uh, Michael, uh, in, in, in the book, More Things in the Heavens, uh, you have outlined and discussed a number of fascinating discoveries made by Spitzer. Let us start looking into some of these discoveries one by one. Let us start with a topic uh, that I am personally very interested in, and that is uh, uh, research on exoplanets. Planets around the stars other than our sun. Planets outside uh, our solar system. Spitzer has detected the first light from an exoplanet and it has enabled us to study exoplanet atmospheres. Talk to us about the discoveries made by Spitzer uh, in this area. That's a good and important question and certainly the explosion and the our understanding of the number and properties of exoplanets has been one of the big stories in astronomy over the last couple of decades. Even a big, even a big planet like Jupiter is a lot smaller than the star that it orbits. And so people realized that a good way to discover exoplanets would be to look at their effect on the stars that they orbit. So you're not looking directly at the planets, but you're looking at the stars and inferring the presence of the planets. So some of the first planets that were first discovered were big planets like Jupiter, but in orbits considerably smaller than the orbit of Mercury. This was a huge surprise. No one expected this. But because of that, you have around many stars, you have a, a big planet, which is quite close to the star. And because it's close to the star, it's hot because it's heated by the star. That means that this planet has a significant amount of infrared radiation, an amount that's uh, detectable by Spitzer, but it can't be seen separately from the star. So you have a star which produces a huge amount of infrared radiation and a planet which produces a, a substantial amount of infrared radiation. The way you separate them out is by taking advantage of the fact that many there are so many exoplanet systems that a goodly number of them are in orbits which are seen edge-on as we look at them from Earth. And when the planet orbit is edge-on, then if the planet goes in front of the star, you can see that effect because the light of the star dims temporarily. That's called the transit. If this is a planet which is hot and big enough to produce substantial infrared radiation, when it goes behind the star, which is called the eclipse, the amount of light from the system drops because the infrared radiation from the planet is no longer visible. It's blocked by the star. 
And by observing these eclipses, where the light of the planet is temporarily blocked by the by the star, Spitzer was able for the first time to see the light from uh, exoplanets when the planet comes out from behind the star. The infrared radiation from the combination increases due to the contribution from the planet, which Spitzer is is observing. So that's how we were able to measure the light from planets, and by doing that at a number of different wavelengths or a number of different colors of infrared light, we can study uh, the composition of the planet, and by doing it over as a function of time to see how the infrared radiation varies as the planet goes around the star, we can actually determine the temperature distribution on the surface of the planet and study how energy is transported around the planet by uh, often by winds in the uh, atmosphere of the of the exoplanet. So those are some of the areas where Spitzer's observations of light from planets have been very important scientifically. Michael, uh, telescopes enable us to look back in time, and when we look through a powerful telescope, we see our universe as it was at some point in time in the past. When Spitzer was developed, uh, it was expected that we would be able to see our universe uh, when it was uh, just uh, 2 billion years old. However, Spitzer performed well beyond this expected target. It enabled us to see our universe when it was about 800 million years old? Right. Actually, uh, we observed galaxies... As few as as early as just a few hundred million years after the Big Bang, and these galaxies are typically observed not only by Spitzer, but also by Hubble. And the combination of Spitzer with the Hubble Space Telescope has been very powerful for studying these very young and distant galaxies. The the big surprise there is not the performance of the telescope so much as the performance of nature. We didn't really anticipate that telescope that galaxies big and bright enough to be seen in this way would exist at this early epoch. There was the idea that galaxies would be growing gradually over time by a process of mergers and acquisitions, if you like. And instead, these large and luminous galaxies are almost uh, springing full-blown into existence in the very early universe. And I don't think that that is, is yet understood theoretically, but it's a phenomenon that has allowed us to identify numerous galaxies at a much earlier epoch than we had any idea that we'd be able to see. And by studying these galaxies, we're able, for example, to understand the process by which uh, black holes have grown in the universe. We're able to study the process by which um, the intergalactic matter, the matter between the stars and galaxies has been ionized. The, the, uh, the neutral hydrogen atoms have been turned into uh, electrons and protons so the universe has become more transparent. And we've also put together a substantial catalog, if you like, of these types of galaxies for follow-up studies by NASA's next big major project, which is the James Webb Space Telescope. 
as uh, Spitzer enabled us to observe uh, early universe. Uh, were there other uh, interesting observations uh, that were made uh, by Spitzer, uh, particularly uh, uh, from the perspective of the origin of our universe? The, the, the thing that stands out is the, is the discovery of these very, very distant galaxies. Spitzer and other telescopes have the ability now to look at galaxies throughout the universe, not just at the very early universe, not just at the very nearby galaxy universe, but at sort of all redshifts, if you like, at all distances from, uh, from the current universe to a time, an epoch when the universe was uh, less than 10% of its current size. And when you study these galaxies with Spitzer, you can determine both the mass of the stars that they contain and the rate at which the stars are being formed because the, the luminosity of, of uh, many of these galaxies are galaxies where stars are forming and the, and the radiation from the forming stars emerges in the infrared. At other infrared wavelengths, we have uh, tools or observations we can make to basically determine the mass of the stars in the galaxy. So we see both the cosmic history of star formation, which is uh, one uh, consideration, and we see the, the mass of stars in the epoch through a different set of observations. And very satisfyingly, these two sets of observations agree. If you look at the rate at which stars are forming with cosmic time, you can sum that up to say how many stars should have formed at any one time, and then if you if you look at that time to see how many stars you see, uh, the the numbers agree very well. So that's a very satisfying uh, con concordance between two rather separate observations, uh, both of which have been largely carried out from Spitzer. Spitzer has enabled us to see through interstellar dust clouds. Uh, and has enabled us to observe uh, the regions of galaxies where stars are formed. Uh, these regions uh, are usually surrounded by dust clouds. Spitzer has enabled us to study the process of star formation. That's correct, yeah. Um, Spitzer has, has um, well, first of all, <clears throat> we understand now that when you talk about star formation, you're really talking about the formation of stars and planetary systems. The formation of a planetary system is a inevitable consequence of the formation of a star because of the fact that as the star forms and material collect, the star forms when a piece of an interstellar cloud starts to collapse under its own gravity, it's pulling itself together and as material falls onto that forming star, it tends, much of it will go into orbit around the star because of a phenomenon called conservation of angular momentum. So the material can't all fall directly onto the star. It goes into orbit around the star in a disc-shaped configuration, and it's within that disc that planets, are, that planets would be forming in many cases around a forming star. Uh, if we look in our own solar system, we see that all the planets are 
roughly speaking, in a plane, and they're all orbiting around the sun in the same direction, that plane is the plane in which the uh, protoplanetary disk around our sun uh, was was formed, and it was rotating in such a way that all the planets that formed within it are rotating around in the same direction. So by studying this phenomenon, the formation of stars and planetary um, systems, Spitzer has understood the efficiency with which stars are formed, how much of the material in a collapsing cloud can form stars. We found out that stars often form in, in groups, not individually, but in, in groups which will become uh, clusters of stars. We've determined the time scale with which planetary systems form, which is very fast. A planetary system will start to form within a few million years after the collapse of the star begins. The configuration we're looking at is a star condensing at the center of a disk within which planets will eventually form. It's a, it's a coupled um, system. The, the pieces interact with one another. By looking at such systems, Spitzer has been able to see the first stages of planet formation in the protoplanetary disk, to study the composition of the uh, material that goes into the planets as they form, to see the uh, molecules of water and uh, other uh, perhaps biologically interesting materials both in the, in the system, both as um, ices on in the form of ices on uh, condensed on interstellar grains and in the form of gases in the uh, interior regions of these protoplanetary systems. So Spitzer has brought new insights into the all features, all portions of the, the star formation process. And just to, to kind of punctuate that, I think people should realize that the universe, our galaxy is probably, you know, 13 billion years old or so. Uh, the sun, we know, is four and a half billion years old. But even in, in the, bearing in mind these very long timescales, today in our galaxy, stars are forming. So it's not the case that stars formed a few billion years ago and nothing has happened since then. We have stars forming throughout the galaxy even today. And Spitzer has studied a number of the, re the regions where these stars and their associated planetary systems are forming uh, even as we speak. And Spitzer has hinted the existence of uh, miniature solar systems around brown dwarfs. That's correct, yeah. The, the Spitzer has shown that well, a brown dwarf is, is an object which which was condensing to become a star, but which was never got hot and dense enough at its center to be a star. So um, it's thought that the the mass limit for uh, this these brown dwarfs is about a little less than a tenth of a solar mass. So an object which is condensing that only grows to be about 0.08 solar masses. Um, 
is a brown dwarf, but it can still be seen in the infrared. It doesn't generate energy like a star does, but as it formed, it a lot of energy was created because of the material because the material was coming together to uh, collapse onto the central object. So this so-called heat of formation is dissipating away with time, and it can be seen in the infrared. So Spitzer has done a lot of interesting work on brown dwarfs, some of which is involved demonstrating the presence around brown dwarfs of planet-forming disks similar to those which are known to form planets around uh, solar-type stars. So there aren't that many cases, maybe none definite as of yet, where uh, Spitzer has found planets around, or anybody else for that matter, has found planets around brown dwarfs. But there's ample reason to believe that that can happen because of the fact that the brown dwarfs um, are home to these potentially planet-forming disks. After a star has formed and gone through its evolution, if it's a star like the sun, it heats up or puffs up to become what's called a red giant, and the red giant evolves further into what's called a planetary nebula. So uh, towards the end of its life, the star itself has, con- has shrunken to, be co- to what's called a white dwarf, which is basically the hot core of the star, surrounded by what's called a planetary nebula, which is a cloud of uh, dust and gas. And again, white dwarfs like brown dwarfs are quite common. And Spitzer has actually studied a planetary systems around white dwarfs. Again, a bit of a surprise because people thought, well, when the star swells up to become a red giant, it becomes as big as the orbit of Mars or something like that. Uh, no planets are going to survive. But in fact, planets which are exterior in that picture of the orbit of Mars can survive this evolutionary process and um, they can be studied, Not again, not the planets themselves, but uh, interplanetary dust or dust clouds, which are produced by collisions between the planets, or in the case of a white dwarf, are produced by uh, the gravity of the white dwarf, which is very strong, pulling apart a uh, planet or asteroid-sized object, which gets too close to it. And that fills the space around the white dwarf with with dust, which Spitzer has been able to study. There is a massive black hole uh, at the center of our galaxy. Now, uh, the center of our galaxy is a a very crowded place, uh, and this region has... uh, dust clouds as well. Uh, I believe the Spitzer Space Telescope was instrumental in helping us observe and study uh, uh, that part of our galaxy and the black hole that exists at the center of our galaxy? That's correct, yeah. What, what we've been what we've been able to do with Spitzer is monitor the infrared radiation from the city of the black hole and study its variability uh, in ways that tell us about how the accretion process, the process by which 
material is fed into the black hole about how that process occurs. So Spitzer has studied the uh, accretion uh, of the matter onto the black hole, often again in conjunction with other instruments, in this case X-ray telescopes, which observe a higher energy manifestation or higher energy uh, consequences of the same process. So that's uh, how um, Spitzer has contributed to studying that um, central black hole. Michael, you have spent a lifetime working on this project, and this project is a remarkable success story. Talk to us about your personal journey uh, as as you worked on this project, uh, your attachment with the project, and your thoughts on the discoveries uh, made by Spitzer. Of course, it's tremendously gratifying to me to see the... Um, fruits of my labors, if you like, and uh, I was particularly delighted that it was possible to describe the scientific bounty of Spitzer, if you like, in our book, uh, More Things in the Heavens, which was recently published. Um, I think um, a, a few things that I learned along the way. One is that what makes a project like Spitzer successful is the people who work on it. You can have all the um, processes and procedures and rules and what have you that you can imagine, but if you don't have good people and if they aren't properly motivated and then um, given free reign to make full use of their talents, uh, you'll ne you're never going to succeed. So if you were to ask me what's the single thing that's made Spitzer is such a great success, I would say it's the people who worked on it. And that includes a very wide variety of people from a very uh, a wide range of, of backgrounds and, and skills and capabilities, including scientists like myself and my co-author, Peter Eisenhart, as well as uh, university scientists, managers, our contracting teams, the industrial partners, and so forth. The second thing I learned is that um, if you're in something like this for the long haul, it's important not to rely on it totally for satisfaction along the way. And I was fortunate to be able to carry out a fairly productive research career using other instrumentation telescopes on the ground and in airplanes while waiting for the uh, the eventual launch and operation of Spitzer, which has been the, the climax of my career. It's also important to bear in mind that um, most of the science that was done by Spitzer was done, certainly not by me, and not even by the uh, scientists who worked on Spitzer in the development and design phase, but Spitzer, like other NASA programs or projects, is available to the entire scientific community through competitive proposal process. And the people who are selected in this way are called general observers. And much of our most interesting and exciting science has been done by general observers, not by uh, those of us who were intimately involved in developing the project. And um, 
finally, I guess, in in the process of developing Spitzer, I learned an awful lot about myself. I learned an awful lot about how to work with people, uh, which is another uh, key element to to my success and to our success. The, the project scientist, which is the position I have, works very closely with another person called the project manager. The project manager is responsible for allocation of funding and for the actual uh, construction and delivery of the spacecraft. The project scientist is there to make sure that as the development goes forward, that the, the it's consistent with the science that we want to be able to do with the system. And we had very effective cooperation between the project scientist and my colleagues on the one hand and the project manager and his team on the other. And that partnership is one of the things that made Spitzer so successful scientifically. So we had, we had a great objective. We realized what the power of a cold telescope with detector arrays in space would be. We kept our eye on that objective. We made sure that we had uh, intermediate successes to talk about, and we forged a strong team and uh, pulled the entire scientific community along with us. And those are some of the reasons for the success of Spitzer. There are a number of fascinating space uh, missions uh, in the pipeline. Uh, for instance, uh, James Webb Space Telescope, which is planned to be the successor uh, to the Hubble Space Telescope. Uh, through these upcoming projects, uh, what are few important questions that you think uh, we should be able to address? The number one project question that people would like to see answered, which James Webb can make a step towards at least, is understanding how common are our have potentially habitable planets uh, around suns like the star, stars like the sun, I'm sorry, in our celestial vicinity, okay? That would be one important question that James Webb will certainly attack by doing the same type of work as Spitzer has done, but on new samples of of exoplanets which are being discovered all the time. I think at the other end of the universe, so to speak, James Webb has the potential to understand better, much better, how these massive young galaxies have formed and what their implications are for the um, early evolution of the of the universe. So I would say that those are the two of the themes that we're going to hear more about from James Webb. Now, other systems, including WFIRST, which is the NASA mission post-James Webb, and a smaller mission I'm involved with called SphereX, will be studying yet another major question, which is what's called dark energy and dark matter. Again, your listeners may be well aware of the fact that that matter as we know it makes up only a small fraction of the universe. Uh, that 20% of the stuff in the universe is what's called dark matter, which is matter which is felt energetically, felt gravitationally, but not directly seen. And another 70% or so 
is what's called dark energy, which is a mysterious force which isn't understood at all. And I think these uh, substances, these questions, and the uh, processes which gave birth to them will be studied by future generations of telescopes and are very fundamental uh, to our understanding of the universe. Uh, Michael, uh, your book, More Things in the Heavens, how infrared astronomy is expanding our view of the universe is the focus of this conversation. It is an interesting book. It discusses science, it discusses uh, space research, it discusses uh, infrared astronomy and the Spitzer Space Telescope. It outlines the discoveries made by the Spitzer Space Telescope. With all uh, these technical details, uh, there is also an element of storytelling which makes this book interesting. My question is, in your view, how important storytelling is uh, for scientists? Okay, that's that's a really interesting question. And I, first of all, thank you very much for the compliment. Uh, I worked very hard on that aspect of the book. And I want to call out my co-author, Peter Eisenhardt, um, who wrote, he wrote, the extra galactic part of the book, more or less. I walked, I worked, the, wrote the galactic part in terms of the science, but we sort of critiqued each other's work and really endeavored to, to give it that storytelling uh, aspect um, to make it a, a coherent whole rather than a chopped up um, set of separate chapters. And, and in a way, um, Although, in principle, I could have put this book together by having different people write different chapters. I think that by writing the whole thing ourselves, we're able to provide a little bit of that um, storytelling character because we could pick up themes repeatedly as they occurred one field to another. Uh, something which might be important in interstellar space might also be important in our solar system might also be important in uh, regions of star formation and so forth. But we could make sure to, to make those connections. I think that um, storytelling is probably, uh, of the type we're talking about, a very good way to bring science, uh, to, to make science more understandable to the man on the street or the person on the street. And I think doing that is extremely important for a number of reasons. So um, I'm pleased that we struck that kind of accord and um, perhaps it will be a bit of, a, of an example for, for other, other writers in the future. I think as scientists, particularly in my case, one who's been supported largely to do my work by the, by the public, we have an obligation to, to tell those stories and it's very important for the progress of society, that um, um, people have scientific literacy, understand the importance and significance of science. And although I didn't, you didn't ask me for my opinion, I think we have some problems in the United States due to the fact that there isn't uh, adequate appreciation of science, particularly in areas related to the climate change and global warming. 
and we can use storytelling to bring more people on board for addressing uh, such problems uh, and uh, challenges? I hope so. At least get, to, get them more aboard with the overall with the, the importance and significance of science. Michael, uh, we have been discussing your book, More Things in the Heavens, How Infrared Astronomy is Expanding Our View of the Universe. Uh, we have covered a number of topics that you discuss uh, in this book. Uh, is there anything else that you believe is important about uh, this book that we should discuss? Uh, something that I might have missed, uh, I might have uh, overlooked? Well, the, the one thing I would say is that um, with the help of our publisher, Princeton University Press, we're able to include in the book a large number of spectacular images obtained by the Spitzer Telescope. So um, the, uh, uh, the book is very pleasant and pleasing to look at, and uh, I think many people will, will just enjoy leafing through the um, pictures and reading the first couple of chapters and then maybe dipping into other topics along the way in case it gets a little bit too um, uh, technical further on. But I, I, I want people to appreciate the fact that this book is, uh, uh, is a pleasure to look at and a pleasure to hold and contains numerous spectacular images which are very, very instructive. Michael Werner, thank you very much uh, for being with me. It has been an absolute pleasure having you on my show. My pleasure. Thank you and goodbye. Okay, my pleasure. Thank you. Bye-bye.